It's my joy uh, to be able to bring the word today on Christ the King Sunday and then also to uh, wrap up this series uh, in Chicago as it is in heaven. And today we're going to be looking at, uh, at work as it is in heaven. How many of you have jobs? Okay, that's what I thought. I thought it'd be a high number of people. Um, uh, so today we're going to be looking at uh, how is it that heaven comes to How is it that we maintain our identity as the people of God in the places, in the context where most of us spend most of our time? Most of us spend most of our time at our place of employment. Um, And so how is it? How is it that we stay faithful? How is it that heaven comes to that particular space in our lives? Um, Many of you know um, that I was in full-time ministry for many years and then uh, took a job as a bivocational pastor to, at, a, at a tech company. And my first title at the tech company was the title Scrum Master, uh, which is an awesome title. Um, but my job was essentially to manage the Scrum. I, the, I had teams of software developers, and they were developing software, but I was developing the teams. I was leading the team. I was helping them get things done and focus and organize around the work. Um, but I remember the first, my first day at work, and I remember sitting down for my very first meeting on this team of tech people, having never worked at a tech company before. And I remember they started having a conversation pretty quickly about this very complex integration that they were going to start working on around these two different systems. And, they, and, I, and I got about two sentences in and realized I didn't know any of the words that people were... I didn't understand what any of the words that they were saying meant. And it was at that moment that I realized... This is going to be a long, slow slog, like learning a whole new way to speak. I learned, I've learned a whole lot about technical stuff, not as much as I, as I, as I wish I knew. Um, but I've also now in the corporate world learned a whole other way to speak as well, this, this language of corporate culture. Um, this is one of my favorite books uh, about this, is this book called Who Touched Bass in My Thought Shower? Um, <laughs> And, and essentially, it's a dictionary that, uh, that has all of these different sort of technical uh, corporate jargon phrases in it to help you understand what they mean in case you're in a meeting and someone says one of them. In case someone says, you know, we're just going to, let's just address the low-hanging fruit. Or let's just take some time and do some blue sky thinking. Or, uh, you know, what are the key drivers that are going to really move the needle on this? Um, or does anybody here have a big, hairy, audacious goal? You know, I mean... All of these ways that we speak in the corporate world that, that I had to learn, that I didn't understand. Um, and the reality is, is that um, our work doesn't just change the way we talk. It also changes who we are. It changes how we see. Our work gives us eyes. Our calling and our vocation gives us eyes for seeing the world. I want you to just take just a moment and take the simple scene. Imagine the simple scene of a second grader sitting at the dining room table doing their math homework. Now, for a moment, I want you to look at that scene through mom eyes. What's a mom thinking, a person whose calling it is to be full-time mom? What's a mom thinking when they look at, at that second grader doing their math homework? Right? I hope, I hope she's having a good experience at class. I hope she's making friends. I hope she learns this math really well so that she can succeed 
and that she can maybe not have some of the challenges that I've had. I mean, all the different ways that a mom would look at that scene of a second grader sitting at a table. Now think of that scene and think about it through the eyes of a mathematician. What does a mathematician think? I don't even know. I can't even begin to guess what a mathematician would think when they're looking at that. They might be thinking about, you know, what's the framework? What's the pedagogy? What's the, what's, how, how are they approaching math? What's the approach for learning math here? A teacher, an elementary school teacher, if they were to look at that picture, they would have the same sort of thoughts, right? Is this common core? Is this, what perspective on math is this? What's the pedagogy that they're using in order to teach this child math? Our work, our callings, frame how we see the world. All the scenes that pass before our eyes, all the activities that we participate in. Our work doesn't just shape how we talk, it shapes us. Uh, Matthew Crawford uh, received a PhD in philosophy from the University of Chicago several years ago and promptly went to work doing what most PhDs in philosophy do, uh, he opened a motorcycle repair shop. Um, Dr. Crawford has written this very compelling book uh, called Shop Class as Soulcraft. Um, and in this book, he argues for a return after years and years of thinking in his PhD in philosophy program at the University of Chicago. He, he, he advocates for a return to manual work as a means for promoting human flourishing. Listen to what he writes. He says, to begin with, we are accustomed to think of the business world as ruled by an amoral, bottom-line mentality. But in fact, it is impossible to make sense of the office without noticing that it has become a place of moral education, where souls are formed and a particular ideal of what it means to be a good person is urged upon us. When we think about work, our tendency is to reflect on how we, as free moral agents, shape our work, yet... We must not overlook how the work we do profoundly forms us as individuals within a community. The work we do affects the contours of our thinking. It develops our competencies and contributes to our manner of feeling and well-being in the world. We shape our work, and our work shapes us. We shape our work. And our work shapes us. Now, long before philosophers and motorcycle mechanics were noticing this moral formation, for good or for bad, the moral formation that happens in our work, the Apostle Paul wrote about it in Romans chapter 12. And I want to invite you to turn there in your Bibles if you have them, if you're in your bulletins. In the passages leading up to Romans 12, Paul has been laying out in 9, 10, and 11 uh, the uh, the glory of what God has done in Christ. This long story of God creating a people through which he would work in the world and then their failure uh, and then bringing the Gentiles into membership in the people of God and, and, and restoring their human vocation to the Gentiles, the human vocation to the Gentiles. In Romans 9, 10, 11, we hear the story of how Israel failed to be the people of God. And when we hear this story, I think typically as, as, as modern evangelicals, many times we're, we're tempted to hear this and think of it simply as a story about moral failure. We think of all the ways that morally the, the people of God lost their way. But 
but Israel's primary failure, what I want to put before you this morning, is that Israel's primary failure was not, at bottom, a moral failure. That was the fruit of it. But at bottom, the failure of the people of God was a failure of vocation. It was a failure to live up to their calling to be a kingdom of priests in the world. Remember this. Do you remember in Exodus 19 when the people, when the people pass through the Red Sea and Moses, Moses goes to meet with God. And God says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you are to speak to the people of Israel, Moses. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests. What does this mean, a kingdom of priests, a royal priesthood? What it, what it points back to is, is the garden. And the original calling for humanity, the original calling of humans to represent and bear God's image into the world. And then also to function as priests and to sum up all of the goodness in the world and offer it as an offering of praise. The kingly role was this role of God reflecting in the world, reflecting his justice, reflecting his mercy, reflecting his powerful love, reflecting his kindness, his tenderness, reflecting uh, the ability to create all of the things that God could do, reflecting personality, all the things that God is. The, the kingly role was one of image reflecting. And the priestly role was that of walking through the beauty and all the goodness that God had made and gathering it up gathering it up, summing it up, and offering it back to him is an offering of praise, taking all the goodness and giving it back to him. And fundamentally, the failure of the people of God in the Old Testament was a failure to live out that kingly, priestly role. Look at 1 Peter 2, 9. You don't have to turn there. I'll read it for you. Peter talks to this new people of God in Christ, and he says, but you, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his light. You, the new people of God in Christ, are called, again, the call to be a kingdom of priests, a royal priesthood, has been renewed in the life, death, resurrection, and ascension. Of Jesus. He says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. In the opening chapter, in the opening words of the book of Revelation, when John is unfolding this great apocalyptic vision where he pulls back the curtain on what God is doing in human history so that church that's suffering and that church that is in persecution can, can be comforted and tended to by a vision of what God is actually doing behind the scenes. When John, pull, when John opens up the curtain on what God is doing, listen to what he says. He says, Grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before the throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth. 
to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us, made us a kingdom priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. When John unfolds this heavenly apocalyptic vision, what he wants the people to see first off is the work of Christ, the work on the cross, the work of the empty tomb was to make again and renew the holy vocation of the royal priesthood to function again as a kingdom of priests. The great challenge, as we all know, is to hold on to that identity as we go into the world, isn't it? Such a challenge to hold on to it. I love the pastoral heart and the honesty of the Apostle Paul here because he assumes, coming out of this beautiful exposition of what God has been doing, he assumes that even though our hearts have been captivated by this, our hearts have been captivated by the gospel, that we have put our confidence in Christ and we've seen him and we've been transformed and we've, we've been gloriously put into a transformed community, Paul, as a pastor, assumes that it will be a challenge to hold on to that identity. One of the primary reasons for this is that part of our identity is the new people of God in Christ is that we are called to go out into the world, not to join ourselves to some sort of holy enclave, right, where all of the practices and everything we do together and all the way that we talk reinforce our way of seeing the world and keep us in this holy identity. No, the call, The call upon the new people of God in Christ is an apostolic calling. It's a sent calling. It's it's why we're sent out from this place every Sunday. Go out into the world now. Go out. But Paul knows that when we go out, all of these powerful forces want to shape us in our formation and change the way we see ourselves. So that work, our work, whether it's in the home or the office, or the school, or in outside, or wherever it is that we work, becomes a place, a place, a primary place of spiritual formation for us. Becomes a critical place for spiritual formation. What I want to put before you this morning um, is this. As I've been thinking about this passage this week, um, I want to put in front of us some royal priesthood practices. I had a friend who worked at Starbucks, and uh, during the time that he worked at Starbucks, they had this little thing called the Green Apron Book. And did any of you ever work at Starbucks and have the Green Apron Book? Okay, he, Scotty did. Um, had the Green Apron Book. And, and what the Green Apron Book did, it, it, it talked about the kind of place that Starbucks wanted to be. It wanted to be a welcoming place. But it assumed that some people would not know what welcoming was. Right? And so it said, so this is what welcoming means. It means greeting somebody, learning their name, like it's spelled out in practices what it looked like to be a welcoming person. And Starbucks knew this was crucial. And so they said, keep this little book, keep it in your green apron so you can remember. Some ways this morning, I, I need these kinds of practices, right? I need some practices to help me hold on to my identity 
my royal priesthood identity. We need these practices as we go out into the world. We need practices that enable us to hold on to our identity and offer our bodies as a living sacrifice in the world. So let's look at Romans 12, uh, verse 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The first practice that I want to commend to us and put before us is this practice of single-minded devotion in worship. Single-minded devotion in work and worship. It's a single-minded devotion that's so devoted that it doesn't just see itself as the priest functioning in a priestly role in the sacrifice. It's so devoted that it's not just the priest, it's also the sacrifice. So devoted to the act of worship that you lead it, but you are also offered up in it. It's a single-minded devotion to the singleness of God alone as worthy of worship. It's a commitment. It's a commitment and a devotion to the idea that God alone is worthy of my heart and my mind, and my focus. This is constantly coming under assault in our workplace. Constantly coming under assault. One of my very best friends worked at um, a retail establishment for a very large tech company that uh, makes all kinds of stuff in the world. Magical stuff. I'll let you fill in the lines. Worked for this tech company that has very white stores. You go in and everything's white and shiny and silver. Um, and he worked at this, he worked at this tech company um, right at the height of the release of one of their most important products. Um, I don't know why I'm talking like this. I can say Apple, right? <laughs> why am I talking like this? I didn't sign an NDA or anything, right? I can talk about Apple. So he worked for this company right at the height of the release of the first iPhone. And, and he was so excited about all the products and so excited about everything that was going on and everything that was getting, the, the sense that, that, that they were really going to change the world. They were really going to change the world with these products. And I remember uh, talking to him as a believer. And I remember him coming out of work and he would go to sales training. He'd go to all these events and he'd go to all these things where it was essentially like, like an act of worship, Right? saying this is what we should worship. We should worship innovation. We should worship these new things. And he would participate every day, live pretty much in this temple where people would bring in their offering, right? They'd bring in their offering and they'd lay it down and they'd say, I worship with this offering. Please give me the thing that will make my life better, that will change my life. And he said it was just this powerful, difficult thing in the midst of all this, this incredibly swooning feeling that we were really going to change the world, this technology was going to change the world, and it has, by the way, but it was going to change the world, he said it was so difficult to hold on to the gospel as the primary hope for the world when the power of innovation was constantly being held out as the true power that was going to save the world. 
He said he'd constantly have to remind himself, no, innovation will not save the world. Jesus alone is saving the world. Design alone will not save the world. Jesus alone can save the world. And I remember him talking about how in some ways it was costly for him while he worked there. Because almost everybody around him had really, they drank the Kool-Aid. They were in. And it was hard to be a contrarian voice. It was hard in that environment to hold a different hope than everyone else was holding. The interesting thing about this is thinking about the work of Christ on the cross and thinking about what it means to lay our lives down is that Jesus has trans- Jesus transformed the world by overcoming the powers and by taking back the power that had been given to the powers and returning it to the people of God, returning that power to the people of God for their kingly rule in the world. What do I mean by this? What I mean by this is this, is that when people practice innovation, right, when we practice innovation, we're bearing the image of a God who puts new things into the world, who comes up with new solutions, right? So we are reflecting the image of God to the world when we practice innovation. When people practice design and they make things beautiful and functional and better, there, when, that, when that power is in their hands and they're using that for good in the world, it's a beautiful thing. But when innovation becomes the God, or when design becomes the God, then innovation rolls over everything that would stand in its path. And it replaces everything that's old with something new just because new is always better. It can strip us of our humanity while promising us all kinds of new things that they say will make life better. It's a challenge. It's a challenge to hold on to gospel hope when other hopes, other powerful hopes are out there. Paul says this is what we must do. We must have our minds renewed by gospel hope all the time. Minds renewed, restored in the gospel, thinking of the gospel, reminded of the gospel so that we remember what is real hope. And then we take back the power from the powers And it comes back to us as God's people in the world. And we can use what God has made us to do instead of being used. It's using instead of being used. That's the first one, single-minded devotion. To the point that we become the offering. We become the offering. The second practice I want to put in front of us this morning is the practice of submitting to Holy Spirit-infused rhythms and rituals that interrupt the powerfully shaping rhythms of this world. Submitting ourselves to Holy Spirit-infused rhythms and rituals. And when we do that, what we are doing is renewing our minds. When we would take a mind that is sucked up in the rhythm of holiday shopping in the U.S., right, in the frenetic pace of Black Friday and all of the craziness that goes with that way of thinking, right? And we take that very same mind 
and we submit it to Advent. And we say, I take this longing that was going this direction in my mind, and I take that longing and I submit to a different ritual. I submit it to a different ritual which shapes my longings in a different way. Shapes them and orients them in a different direction. Think about um, this semester. We've been we've had a small group uh, down in Hyde Park on the south side, Woo-hoo. and uh, you guys, yeah, um, it's been great. All small group, all right? You guys are raising the roof. Small group. Anyway, I'm sorry. I kind of get excited about small group. Um, anyway, and we've been praying evening prayer together, Compline, on Friday nights. Now, I, when I grew up, I got made fun of a little bit last time for mentioning Jimmy Buffett and all my old school song references. And so I'm going to make another one, another old school song reference, just to show you guys I don't care and I'm not ashamed. <laughs> but when I was growing up, there was a song, Everybody's Working for the Weekend. Like, like, it was like, everybody's working for the weekend. You just like turn it up, you know? And it was like, Yeah. Because, like, the weekend, that's the time when I stop doing all the stuff I hate and start doing the stuff I like. You know? That's the time. That's, that's the 48 hours that's about me. Right? I love it. And I'm going to rest. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do what I want, and that's going to bring me rest. I'm going to love it. Well, we've been getting together on Friday nights, okay? And um, we've been coming together to pray evening prayer together. And honestly, some weeks, I think we all kind of come in, and it's been a long week, and we sort of drag ourselves in, and we sit down, and we ha- start having some conversations, and we eat together. We start having some food, and you get a little, get a little encouraged. And, and then we sit down to pray Compline together. And at the very heart of Compline is the invitation from Jesus in Matthew 11. Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's a different vision for rest, isn't it? Do you see how that's the renewing of a mind? I've got this one way of thinking about rest, which is consumed with doing what I want. And then this renewed vision for rest, which is consumed with responding to the gracious invitation to come to the risen Christ and him, by the power of his spirit, restoring recreating me, recreating us together. It's powerful. And we need these kinds of rhythms in our lives so that we don't get conformed to the world's way of thinking, squeezed in, as Eugene Peterson says, squeezed into the world's mold. These kinds of practices shatter the world's mold and invite us into a new way, invite us into a new The last practice I want to put in front of us this morning is uh, the practice, the priestly practice of proclamation. Because it's our responsibility as the royal priesthood to proclaim the possibility that exists of forgiveness of sins for the whole world. Right? It's powerful. It's our responsibility to proclaim it, to tell people about it. It's our responsibility to bear witness to the love of God, to the reconciling love of God in Christ, the reconciling love of God that brings people who are natural enemies together and makes them into one family. 
It's that reconciling love of God. But what I want to put before us this morning is, is it's important to use words. I don't want to walk away from that. We have to use words to proclaim the hope of the gospel. But I think one of the things that priests have done traditionally that's so powerful and that God made priests to do is to use symbolic action in order to communicate gospel hope. And I think in some ways our imaginations need to be a little bit provoked around this so that we can recover what it means to be out in the work world and use simple symbolic actions to proclaim the truth of God in Christ. How many of you have read Pope Francis's uh, Evangelii Gaudium, The Joy of the Gospel? It's his encyclical on evangelism. Okay, a couple of you. How many of you remember when Pope Francis... Uh, reached down and kissed that uh, person in the wheelchair, um, that very deformed person in the wheelchair at the very beginning of his, yeah, okay. Do you see what I'm saying? See how this works? Okay, hardly a, hardly a document on evangelism has been as powerful as Pope Francis's encyclical on evangelism. It's powerful, but nobody's read it. Like, well, there's three of us, right? <laughs> Which, that's awesome. But... But everybody, everybody remembers the symbol, the symbolic action, right? I have a friend, um, a friend at work, uh, and this isn't a workplace example, but I think it might help us to spur our imaginations around what we might do at work and at home. I have a friend who uh, was watching election results a few weeks ago, a couple of weeks ago, and um, was just profoundly disappointed in what they saw. I know we're all, we're all over the map on responses to that, those election results, right? So that goes without saying. But this particular friend was profoundly disappointed by the election, election results that he saw. And instead of going to Facebook, um, he got his kids together and got some kids and a couple other people together from their community that they're part of in Westmont. And they... They went, and all the kids wrote notes to, uh, to, to people that were at the mosque that's close to their house. And they went and bought some flowers, and they gathered up all the cards that the kids had written, and they took all of this together, and instead of posting on Facebook, they got in their car and they drove to the mosque and found whoever they could meet and handed them these cards and these flowers and said, we want you to know that we stand with you. Because of what Christ has done in us, we love our neighbors. Our calling is to love our neighbors. And they said that the people that received the cards and the flowers were just sort of blown away by the simple act of love at a time when they were deeply and powerfully afraid. Deeply and powerfully afraid. So much so, they were so moved that they found out when my friend and his group were gathering, and when they knew they were gathering on Sunday night, they made a bunch of food and brought it to him. And they made plans. They made plans to share table together in the future. Because I'm just going to tell you that in the midst of all the hideousness that I have, we've all been witnessing, witness to in social media in the last week, this story became a beacon of hope to me. 
And it, and it reminded me of one of the gifts of the priesthood is to create these powerfully symbolic moments, right? It may be something as simple as you're always the person who empties the dishwasher in your office now. Always. It may be as simple as that very difficult coworker that nobody likes. You're their friend. You don't talk about them when everybody else is, right? It's proclamation in the most humble way that doesn't draw attention to us, but draws attention to the risen Christ. And it requires some creativity on our parts, but I think it's worth it. I think it's worth it. Spirit-inspired creativity through symbolic Amen? People of God. People of God. Your calling is to be a kingdom of priests in the world. Summing up all of the goodness that you find in creation and offering as a gift of praise. Listening for the voice of the hurting and offering up a prayer of lament. And reflecting goodness and character of God through everything you do all day long. Let's commit to the practices, the spirit-empowered practices that enable us to hold on to that identity in a world which wants to crush us and shape us into its mold. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.